So welcome everyone to the Life After Pain show. Today we have, we're interviewing Anthony Carey. Anthony holds a master's degree in biomechanics, has been a fitness trainer with 21 years experience whose work has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine and Opera's O Magazine. And Anthony is the founder of Function First, a clinic in San Diego where Anthony and his team treat chronic pain and musculoskeletal imbalances without using drugs or manipulation. He's also the author of The Pain-Free Program, a proven method to relieve back, neck, shoulder, and joint pain. In this interview, we're going to discover how corrective exercise programs that Anthony has developed help people to get their lives back and get active again. So, welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me, Naomi. So, how did you get started focusing on corrective exercise as a way to relieve chronic pain? Well, I began my career a long time ago. Um, uh, Originally, when I was doing my graduate work at San Diego State, uh, I was working in more in the sports medicine side of things, and there was a lot of certainly traditional approaches to the athletes getting injured uh, in the acute phase, but on the chronic side of things, you'd have a lot of people coming back season after season uh, with some of the same uh, repetitive injuries. And uh, not long after my graduate work, um, actually, as I was completing my graduate work, I started working for Pete Agoscu, who some of your um, listeners might be aware, uh, aware of his work. Um, and he was kind of my first introduction into looking at the body a little bit more globally. And I did work for him for a couple of years and, and uh, ultimately became his director of education and, and trained all his incoming therapists and, and that sort of thing before we broke off and started Function First because as do many businesses, the way they start, we felt we could uh, we could do it better. And um, we we feel like uh, in, that, in the years now, Function First is more than 21 years in business, um, is that we have certainly evolved with the science and that we realize the role that exercise does play um, in a lot of different ways, Um, some the way that we originally thought and also some that has changed based on the neuroscience around chronic pain. So I didn't exactly seek to find um, this particular population. What I realized when I was working early on was that it was much more intellectually challenging and much more intellectually interesting for me to work with people uh, when we were really looking at a lot of their movement patterns and where stresses were accumulating in the body and and how certain interventions could make such a profound difference and other interventions, uh, even from an exercise standpoint, could actually either have none or negative effects on a person. Okay, so this this raises a whole lot of questions here, but... Um, what is some of the neuroscience that you take into account when you are designing exercise programs, say for um, lower back pain? Well, you know, the, the neuroscience behind uh, chronic pain is not specific really to any region. So whether it's your lower back, your neck, your shoulder, your knee or whatever, um, the, the, the neuroscience behind it is is pretty strong and, and consistent. Um, and what we know now is that, first of all, that there's there's no pain until the brain says there's pain. Um, and for a lot of folks, that is um, somewhat of an uneasy piece of information to digest because 
people often hear that it's in my head and that's not the case at all. It just simply means that the brain is the one that ultimately decides if, if what you're experiencing is worthy of that pain experience and which in, even the word experience is different than the sensation or, or stimulus. And so when we realize that um, no matter how much the brain's involved and how much the nervous system has increased its sensitivity to the information it's getting from the lower back, for example, that ultimately exercise and movement has to provide a reliable and consistent reference to the brain that the back is capable of doing this and that and moving in certain ways and that it's not as fragile as uh, is being interpreted. So the neuroscience, uh, you know, involves a lot of things and why that per once pain becomes chronic, I'm sure uh, a lot of your listeners, if they've been keeping up on, on a lot of what's come out in the last five to 10 years is that there's so much that goes into this big soup that creates that pain experience. But no matter what, and, and, and the sort of the different strengths and contributions of the ingredients of that soup, everybody wants to be able to move and have a productive life and in, interact with their environment and their family, that sort of thing. So that's where exercise really, really um, comes into play because sometimes it might be um, some of these other parts of the the soup might be actually greater contributors than the disc or the spondylosis or spondylolisthesis, but if we can provide very credible evidence to the nervous system uh, that that doesn't isn't as important as the brain originally thought it was, then that person can really live a much more productive life because there's no reason for the brain to say, hey, we got to put pain there and we've got to stop them from using that back because they might damage it some more when in fact it's, that's never going to happen. That's a very interesting way, way of looking at it where it's like you're almost building a case for your pain system to to not be on, on hyper alert. So what exactly. are some of yeah, no, this is fascinating. What are some of the ways that you could start to create this build up this evidence for your nervous system? Well, that, that's a fantastic question, and that's the difference between just saying exercise and strategic exercise. And when we are communicating and, and describing what we do to our clients and those that are interested in what we do, um, the corrective exercises are, in fact, very strategic for each individual. Um, and, and so we base that a lot on the biomechanics of the person. So we, we still look at posture. We still look at the way they walk. We look at the way they squat and they reach and they bend and all that sort of thing. Um, and we can see where that is part of sort of their current movement catalog. And as long as they keep moving that way, the message is going to be continuing to be reinforced through the nervous system to the brain that this is what we, this is what we do and this is, this is the consequences of that. And if we're able to introduce some novel input with the exercises that, say, work on influencing the body to do something, which we would then call that a corrective exercise because we're looking to correct or at least positively influence because we're not looking for perfection. We're just looking for enough change that this novel input that comes from the exercise is enough to uh, disrupt the um, contemporary or current message that the, the nervous system is used to receiving and interpreting. And so we do that through the course of um, also through uh, ascending our programs, meaning that you can't 
ask somebody to do a, a movement um, from a, a corrective goal that is initially too comprehensive or too involved because what will end up happening is the, the nervous system will start to immediately sense a threat and then it'll block, meaning that it'll just create ways to compensate. So we, we begin with much more remedial and simpler exercises that are sort of stacked upon each other and they're ascended into more complex exercises uh, because what you've done is you've, you've created credible evidence starting very early and you're sort of giving, you're taking every little bit that the body gives you until you find out what, what the edge of that envelope is for that person's movement catalog without bringing them to the point of, of it being sensed as danger or threatening to them. So could you give an example maybe of, of somebody, um, how you firstly, um, what's one of the simplest exercises that people start with? Uh, completely varies, again, depending on what we've learned from their assessment and um, their, as well as, you know, taking that thorough health history. And, and within that health history, we're also learning about what's worked for them in the past, where their apprehensions and concerns are, what do they absolutely not want to do, what did somebody else do to them or ask them to do that they felt was, you know, harmful and all those sorts of things. All that goes into this giant funnel of decision making that we use and at the very end of that funnel we spit out you know what we think is going to be um, applicable to this person and safe to them so for example if somebody came in and, and they did have lower back pain we might initially just begin a few exercises with them on the floor where their spine and their hips are unloaded and um, a lot of the secondary guarding and apprehension and, and upregulation we would call it to the muscles is is reduced and because they are comfortable and the threat's reduced. And then we can introduce, you know, some novel movements and exercises, and, and some of them might be stability exercises, some of them might be mobility exercises, some of them might be for the purpose of kind of uh, motor re-education. Um, again, sort of all depending on, on what we've seen in this person. And then uh, as that person successfully uh, completes those those first couple of exercises, then we might go to a slightly more, a challenging position from a gravitational standpoint or slightly more neurologically involved exercise, meaning that they're moving a body part a little bit more now or they're stabilizing while they're moving. And then we might go to, say, a half-kneeling position where now their relationship to gravity is more vertical and uh, they have some stability requirements while they're also doing something else. And as you're moving through these uh, these progressions, you're we describe it as we're asking, not telling the body what it needs to do. So we'll, we'll say, we think we, this is going to be good for you. And then the person gets into the position, the exercise, it's not threatening. Uh, they're, they're able to successfully complete it. And, you know, you can, there's a, a, a picture of comfort or, or at least confidence in their face. And then we can go to the next thing and we move to the next one. And, and then we ask again. And um, these are certainly educated questions that we're asking. We're not just randomly throwing things at them, again, based on, on all this information that we've gotten, both from a biomechanical and the intake that we've done with them. And you, and you move along that progression until all of it with always having an objective at the end of what, from a movement standpoint of what you're trying to accomplish where that person still feels um, confident and safe going through that movement. And it also build some credible evidence in their nervous system and in their brain that, wow, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Interesting. And how do you, um, 
how do you help people to control the anxiety that comes with you know extending their movement and if they've had an experience in the past that certain movements are going to hurt them how do you help them start to relax really well, that, that's a great question because if, if we don't get to that point, then any movements that we ask them to do that are sort of resemble what, what we're asking or what they feel is threatening will be compensated and guarded and, and protected as they move through it. And so um, there's a lot of different ways that you can achieve motion that are new to the nervous system, but ultimately the net the motion that's produced is the same one. So, for example, if uh, somebody, we wanted somebody to be able to rotate their head to the right, turn their neck to the right, and they had neck pain, um, we might do something where their head is still and they're, and they're side-lying and they're rotating their shoulders to the left. Now, that's the equivalent of turning their head to the right, but in terms of what their eyes see, so that feedback that they got, in terms of what their head did, which was nothing, it stayed still, their inner, inner ear gave them that input. In terms of the muscles that were being lengthened versus shortened is different. So all of this is something that the, that the nervous system can't latch onto as familiar and that historically has provided pain. And so here this person just turned their head to the right and they didn't even realize they turned their head to the right because in a completely new and novel way and that the nervous system couldn't recognize. So it didn't, it didn't say this is in our, this is in our database as a pain producing movement. This is all different in terms of what our eyes are seeing, what our inner ears are telling us, what muscle feedback that we're getting. All that is completely different, but the net results, neck or cervical rotation to the right. That is brilliant. I, I really, I really think that's that's a fantastic way to start um, retraining the reactions to movement. What are some of the other common movements that you, that you find people have difficulty with, and how do you approach retraining those? Well, we have to understand that the person. Uh, when a person experiences pain, when they associate with a with a specific movement, to that person, it's that movement and that movement only. Meaning that if I've if I've got a history of lower back pain or or sciatic pain, and, and when I flex my spine forward, I bend forward at the waist. Okay, I know that that's dangerous to my back because it's hurt me in the past before, or had an excruciating uh, episode six months ago after I did X. So from therefore, I'm never going to do X the same way again because Lord knows I don't want to have to experience that same episode again ever because it was so intense. Uh, and they were in a lot of pain for two months and then it started to eventually go away based on whatever they were doing and whatever it is, they have, they have this very strong memory of bending this way, turning that way as they went to pick something up. And so, so never again do they ever want to experience that, so therefore never again are they ever going to want to do that movement again. And they'll associate that movement with the pain. Now, the interesting thing is that movement 
that they think is just I bent. They're also getting a lot of, their, you know, we know how robust our nervous system is. And so there's so much input going in initially. And again, we go back to what the, the eyes and the inner ears and all the little receptors in the, in the tissue, be it the muscle or be it the connective tissue, and, and the receptors and the ligaments around the joints are all providing this information, which is just purely the, the sensory input or the bio side of things in there. But there's also, they didn't realize that it was also happening in a certain location, a certain time of day, with certain smells and all kinds of other things that, believe it or not, maybe not as influential as the mechanical part of that soup that we talk about. So when a person associates a movement to a pain-producing event and something that potentially will hurt them all the time, we want them to understand that there's a lot that went into that. And not that we're going to ask them to move through it or um, kind of suck it up and, and, and get it done. It has a lot more to do with them understanding that, okay, that scenario, here's what the scenario was. Let's look at it a little bit more more globally. Let's step back and, and look at it from a 30,000-foot view versus just at that particular structure in your back that experienced some tissue damage at that time. And when a person does that, they realize, well, okay, I was also very stressed. I was dehydrated. Um, I hadn't slept well the night before. There's all kinds of other things that potentially were, were adding to that particular experience. Sometimes it's a perfect storm for people. And the danger to the individual who experienced that to isolate one specific reason why it happened means that that becomes something, again, that they never want to do or they want to stay away from, which ultimately interferes with how they live their life and what they're capable of doing uh, to enjoy that life. And it also means that there's, there's a chance that if they ever accidentally do that again, they're immediately going to anticipate another injury. Right. That, that makes total sense. Do you have any examples or, or stories of, peop of people that you've seen that come to mind that really kind of exemplify this triggered pain response? I do. Um, we, I have a, a very um, powerful story that, that we often share with um, our students that go through our, our curriculum on this. And, and I had a, a client who was actually a PhD and um, she, had, she was sort of more on a maintenance-type schedule with us, meaning she'd come in once every three months or so to get reassessed and get some new exercises. And she originally saw us for chronic pain in her knee. And uh, she had, had made an appointment to see me, but in the week prior to that appointment, um, some very significant traumatic things had happened in, in her life. Or her husband was in a, in a South American country, and his car was hijacked, and he was almost, they thought he was going to, he thought he was going to be killed. Um, he, her uh, family friend was robbed at gunpoint in their parking structure, and another thing happened where she got knocked off a bicycle while she was riding in a crowded area, and had fallen on her shoulder, and that was sort of the, um, that was, what was really bothering her at that point, and she was in tremendous amount of pain in her shoulder where she had fallen. But she'd already been to the doctor uh, a week before. Um, nothing was broken. There was really no tissue damage. There was, but she was in this excruciating pain. And uh, when she came in, one of you know the had she gone to you know um, uh, let's just say a more contemporary traditional uh, approach. Um, they would have done a lot of mobilization of, of her shoulder um, 
sport and, and that sort of thing. And what I, having actually spent 20 minutes just talking with her because I knew this woman prior and this was completely, um, uh, I could tell that she was, she came in and she was not her normal jovial self, but at the same time, she was just sort of being a trooper about all this that happened. And uh, we got her in a neutral position on the floor on her back um, so that she could sort of relax and her legs were up uh, over over a bolster. And uh, we were talking to her and I had her just do a few things with uh, with her hand, sort of a stress ball, and focus on her breathing. Well, within three to four minutes um, going through this, she literally broke down and started crying and hyperventilating because she had been holding in all this anxiety and um uh, anger and uh, stress because of these events that just happened. Uh, and as a result of that, and, and you know, I don't pretend to, nor do I want to be any type of, uh, of cognitive therapist. I, I realize it's completely outside of my professional boundaries. It was just giving her an opportunity to, uh, to breathe and communicate what she needed, was trying not to feel like she had to show signs of weakness. And as she um, went through these, uh, very conscious breathing patterns and was able to use her hand while she was doing it. It was enough to, and that, and that I'm not saying I was uh, predicting that was going to happen, but I knew at some, some way we needed to allow her to uh, um, feel comfortable enough that she could, she could communicate in a way that, you know, cause she's, she's a very intelligent person, intelligent woman with her doctorate who is very powerful at the university she teaches at and that sort of thing. And so for her to show that kind of vulnerability, uh, was difficult for her, but once she did, it, it changed her pain in her shoulder completely. Um, and once that apprehension and relaxation went through and some more time passed and we were able to just sort of give her some time and this sort of thing, then we were able to just reinforce that with some of the types of exercises that we, we needed because the window of opportunity was there and that she was no longer as guarded. And, and by doing that, by giving, by not just letting her relax and, and, and all the things that she did in order that, uh, th- that the pain dissipated for her by following that with exercise again it gave the shoulder credible evidence that hey i'm not really damaged look what i can do because i because that window of opportunity was there and that reinforced the fact that this um this experience that she was having in her shoulder did not have to be something that carried on for days or weeks that ultimately became more of a of an ingrained part of her nervous system and her movement patterns so it was you know that's that's an extreme, very powerful example um, that uh, was not planned on our part, and is not necessarily part of our um, our daily approach with clients. But what is part of our daily approach with clients is that we do give them the opportunity to sort of feel safe and communicate with us. It's not a it's not a rushed environment, and and that's very important. So many people come into come through our doors who feel like they've just been a number and it's been shake and bake uh, therapy they've gotten and nobody's listening and they get passed from one person to the other. And, you know, by just giving an opportunity for somebody to uh, express what their concerns are, what their fears are, what their goals are and wants, um, that, that puts us on a little bit, that rapport allows us to um, let that person know at the same time, hey, we're here for you and you're, this, is, this appointment is all about you. It's not about you know, one of us trying to show you how smart we are or what we know. This is, this is why you're here. And, and the number one objective here is for you to get the tools that you will 
need and use to reach the goals that you have. That is a really, that is a powerful story. And it, for some reason, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, well, firstly, that pain in, its, in and of itself is a very stressful experience. And then from that, in, like physiologically, there are a lot of things that happen in, in everyone's body when they're under stress that really impedes the healing process. But what it really Absolutely. reminded me of is, um, for some reason, uh, stuttering. You know, when, when people stutter, when you're talking about things becoming an ingrained habit. Um, I've read that when people stuttering can't hear themselves speak, so they're not able to feed back on what they're saying, they're actually able to speak much more fluently. And it's interesting because it, yes. it just looks at the idea of a movement pattern or even pain itself becoming an ingrained pattern or habit that your nervous system has learnt how to do. Originally, perhaps for a very good reason to protect you, but then if it becomes ingrained, it can outlive its its usefulness. So that's very interesting. It is, and, and you make a great point there because one of the ways that I've heard um, heard this process described uh, and and I have since uh, used it to share with with some of my clients is that it, your nervous system is doing all that for a reason it's just being too good at it when it becomes chronic and it starts to do it when it doesn't really need to do it and so we need to let the brain and the nervous system know that it, you know job well done okay but now let's move on to something different and bigger and better yeah that's interesting because um it's uh, to communicate with your nervous system. It's not. It's like imagine it's not a direct thing. You can't simply say, "Okay, yeah." As you said, job well done. Time to move on. So it sounds like you're doing this through the medium of movement and changing. Exactly. Yeah. What are some of the um, exercises? that you've seen that are very commonly used that you've seen aren't that useful? Well, I, I think all exercises are useful. Um, I, I, have, I have three questions when I, anybody asks me about an exercise, and that's whether it's a fitness pre professional or a client says, well, what do you think about this? And I'll always say, for whom, for what, and when? <laughs> Um, those three questions can help us guide uh, whether or not that exercise is appropriate. Um, I think probably what we're, as we learn about uh, more and more about the chronicity of, of pain and we think of things like, um, uh, like planks and, or even core, core training, uh, you know, all across the world, you have people with lower back pain going to the doctors and, and the doctor's advice is what? You need to strengthen your core. And we know that there's a, a large percentage of people with lower back pain who tightening their core just means more stiffness and, and more reduced motion around their hips and their lower back, which is what they're already doing to protect. Uh, on the flip side of that, we have people that have a great deal of overall instability associated with their back pain, and maybe core training is appropriate for them, but it's not a panacea uh, at all. And 
you know, how you do that core training, um, of course, is as variable as, as the, uh, the colors in the rainbow in terms of what, you know, what type of exercises you want to give people to do. But, you know, when we, when we've moved, which I'm sure is the biopsychosocial um, paradigm now, as we look at the, as we look at chronic pain, you know, exercises generally are, are coming from a purely biomechanical standpoint, right? But if you, if you're able to marry the biomechanics and the neuroscience now you're making much more uh, evidence-based decisions on the exercises you give versus this is a good back pain exercise or this is a good this is good for you know osteoarthritis of your knee. Um, we're looking at it a, a little bit more comprehensively. So and that again, that's sort of strategic exercise versus just exercises you pulled off the internet. Right. So it needs to be really appropriate, and as it says on your site, it's customized for the actual person who who's coming to see you. It does from and and both from a biomechanical standpoint but also from a readiness standpoint by the individual, you know. Uh you could have a person that has has osteoarthritis in the knee and they're they've been doing a bunch of uh laying on the floor exercises for 3 4 6 months lifting legs this way lifting legs that way because that's what the doctor or the physio told them to do. But this person in their heart of hearts is running and their goal is really to run and they want to start with a jog. Well, there's such a huge gap between what they're doing on the floor and actually running that there's no bridging of that. So every time they go to run, it's going to be a threat because their exercises didn't look, smell, feel, taste anything like running. And so they have this they have this tremendous gap in their body's knowledge of what it means to run differently because they've there, there's been no incremental um progression within the exercises to take them there huh. interesting so you you also start with the end in mind whereby you look at what people want to eventually get back to doing and then figure out how you can gradually build up to that i'm glad you said that that's actually a slide that i use in one of my presentations we steal it from stephen covey yeah. begin with the end in mind <laughs> exactly hmm. cool well anthony we're coming up to the um the end of your 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 time um, schedule, and I've got one more question to ask, which is what I ask everybody. But firstly, I want to say thank you so much. I think you've shared some really fantastic information here um, about how people can can think about exercise in a very different way, especially when they have chronic pain. And also, I think people listening to this will want to find out more. So. Can you tell everyone where to go to find out more about your work and what you do? Sure. We uh, Our website is functionfirst.com, and first is all spelled out, F-U-N-C-T-I-O-N-F-I-R-S-T.com, and we're in San Diego, California. Right, okay. And on and I'll put a, a link to your book as well underneath the, the interview. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. Uh, last question. The, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Carry on. Yeah. I was just, just going to comment that the, um, the book still continues to sell very well and, and has continues to, to offer a lot of insight for a lot of people. Um, it is 10 years old, um, so some of, some of the, the information in there is, needs to be updated a little bit just in terms of since the science has been updated, but the exercises are still very effective for a lot of people, and uh, there's parts of the book that were actually ahead of its time. 
Um, but I, I just wanted to add that little um, disclosure in there. <laughs> okay, cool. And also, as, as you said before we started the interview, um, for people in other parts of the world, you do do remote um, Skype coaching as well. So, Yes, we do. Yeah, we have folks from over uh, 17 countries and 33 states that, that we work with. And some come here to see us and some we, we work with via Skype. Brilliant. So the last question is, um, if there was one thing that you would recommend people listening to this interview to do to start getting more active and, and getting back to the things they love, what would that one thing be? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that it, hmm, that one thing would probably be if they want to get back to things they love and do, uh, first that they, they want, I'm sure they already know or are aware of things that they don't want to do because they think it, it hurts. And what I would suggest to do, which is sort of a big shift, is to think about, as we discussed in this conversation, all the other things that it might be part of it. So if it is, in fact, the soup, and we know that there's so many ingredients that go into a soup, and maybe that movement is the broth that legitimately forms the base of the soup, but we know that by changing the ingredients of the soup, we can change the flavor. And the flavor is just a metaphor for the experience. So if we know that we're wearing these shoes and we're doing it in this place and with this person, it smells this way and it's this time of day or whatever it is, um, what if we changed up some of that stuff um, just a little bit? And therefore, can we change the flavor of the soup enough that we can continue to figure out more ways that we can get after it. So I, I honestly think that um, without having the chance to see a person or even talk to them, a, a very valuable piece of advice is to, you know, think about all the other contributing things that are part of what happens when I experience my, my back pain or my neck pain or my whatever it is. And if, if somebody came along and said, you know what, it's not your disc, and then, then what would you say? And then what would you do? You'd have to think, well, it's got to be something. But maybe it's a lot of things. And how many of those lot of things can we, um, can we influence enough to change our experience? Right. That, that is great advice. So Thanks. Thank a little long-winded, but sorry. <laughs> no, no, because, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a principle or an idea that is, you know, might take some thinking about to, to get your head around, but as you said earlier, there's more and more evidence pointing towards this as a major driver of chronic pain. So, yeah. Exactly. Thank you very much, Anthony. And, yeah, thanks heaps for, for sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for you to be a platform for folks that need to hear information and, and, and a resource for them to be able to, uh, you know, make decisions on their own based on the information they get. So kudos to you as well. Okay. Cool. Cheers.